Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and today we've got a really special interview with audio engineer and producer Jason Hall. So Jason Hall has been working in Nashville for a long time now and has worked on some really awesome records, and he's had a long-time partnership with Jay Joyce, also a producer in Nashville, and together they've worked on just a silly number of records together, but some of the artists that they've worked with are The Head and the Heart, Eric Church, Brandy Clark, Brothers Osborne, Carrie Underwood, but you've even got some rock stuff in there from Coin and from Coheed and Cambria, and you've got Amos Lee and Cage the Elephant, and I mean, just the list goes on and on of country and rock and folk and Americana records, and you know, being from Tulsa, I know that world. There's a lot of rock, Americana, folk, and country down in this area. And so I'm always really interested to talk to people and learn from people who do things, in my opinion, really well in that department. So today we're going to have some time to sit down with Jason and ask him some questions and you know talk about some of the records they've worked on and some of his approaches to making records and being an engineer and working in the type of studio that they work in. So I had a lot of fun talking to Jason. I really hope that uh, all of you enjoy this interview and learn a whole lot. Uh, make sure to check out his discography as well as Jay Joyce and some of the records they've worked on together. They're really, really awesome sounding records. As I mentioned, I think in the interview, uh, the Mountains of Sorrow, Rivers of Song record from Amos Lee is maybe a top 10 record for me. It's one of my favorite albums ever. Not just for the music, but for the sounds and the recording is just just awesome. So if you haven't checked out that record, make sure you do. So I'm really, really excited to share this interview. Jason was very gracious to sit down and give me his time and answer a bunch of geeky questions. So let's get on to the interview. So Jason, why don't you give us a little bit of backstory on you, how you got into the business, how you got into recording and engineering and just what's your story? Yeah, Kendall. Well, thanks for first off, thanks for letting me uh, join you today. Uh, I think this sure. is this is really great. I love your your uh, podcast. So I kind of came at it first off by playing music in high school. Um, you know, playing guitar, singing songs, having bands, and I was working at a music store. So I kind of started kind of getting into like learning about the tech stuff because. You know, I was trying to sell little, you know, PV mixer boards or something to people. Right. And um, I saved up and I got my first four track cassette recorder, which uh, for me was like, holy cow, like this, this is like massive technology boost from, you know, from a you know little uh, cassette recorder, you know. Right. And um, so I, uh, I immediately got bit by the recording bug and I started recording all my my music, but then also all of my friends bands. And I knew pretty early on from that, that that was something that I would, I was interested in doing for the rest of my life, really, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, I was up in, um, I was an Air Force brat growing up, so we, we kind of moved all over the States and, um, and I was interested in, in coming back down South. I'm originally from Alabama. Mm. And, uh, so I was interested in coming back down South and then I heard about this program at, at uh, middle Tennessee state university, uh, MTSU here. So I went in and, uh, and walked right into the studios. And when I saw that big, you know, the big large format console and the big tape machines and everything, I was like, I'm in, this is, this is it. You know, this is what I want. <laughs> right. So I, I kind of started doing that. Uh, went, 
went to school there. You know, while I was in school, I kind of hooked up with some people that had had studios here and there. And a, and, a, and a friend of mine had a studio with an old MCI console and two inch tape and all of this really cool uh, vintage gear and stuff. And, and I actually was recording his record while I was going to school. So I, I kind of just sort of started doing it, you know, right. um, when I, I did an internship and, um, when I graduated, I had a job lined up at a big studio and, uh, but it decided, uh, oh, maybe I wanted to check out New York or something to see if maybe that's where I wanted to start from. So I went up to New York and, uh, and realized that, oh yeah, you're going to be a, an unpaid intern in New York, right. just like you would be in Nashville and Nashville at the time was a lot cheaper. So I came back to uh, find out that my job that had lined up actually went away. Mm. So I, uh, I ended up just kind of starting freelancing when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and uh, just really never looked back. You know, part of the big thing for me was I was willing to do any and everything, whether it was paid or not. I was, you know, I went into studios and would assist or would, you know, clean toilets or, you know, be the food runner. And um, I was certainly happy doing any of that stuff. And uh, right. eventually my past crossed with um, with uh, Jay Joyce, who's a, a music producer here. Uh, and uh, that was about uh, that was a week after 9-11 is when I first started working huh. with Jay. And so I've been with wow. him for for this is our 20th year together. So, um, wow. Yeah, as they say, the rest is history. But <laughs> yeah, what's so? What's that? Uh, I mean, obviously, you guys have done tons of great records together, and I made it a point to myself to I was like, not just talk about everything Jay Joyce because obviously Jay is very, very great. I was like, but I want to talk about Jason because again, our podcast is a little more on the engineering side, a little yeah. less on the producing side, a little more on the geeky side, a little, you know, a little more on the actual like kind of nuts and bolts work and and so what what's that relationship look like so you know producers take many forms sure jay is a really hands-on kind of guy like he likes getting in there and messing with stuff he likes kind of playing a lot of different types of roles depending on on the project and so for our relationship it's always been kind of like i'll set the scene for what i think it's supposed to be and then jay will get in there and kind of manipulate stuff and then i kind of bring it back and then he kind of brings it you know so we kind of sure. we tend to get in there and it's a lot of like hands-on sort of manipulating of things together and then eventually we land on a vision that both of us are kind of into and that ends up usually being the, the answer you know <laughs> um yeah. and um but i think you know working with a producer like jay his role tends to change depending on what the project demands are so some projects need a need somebody that's going to get in there and really work the the songs and really flesh out arrangements and all that kind of stuff other times it's about providing us an environment where the artist feels comfortable and can perform in a certain way. And Jay's really good at sort of like figuring out what role he needs to play. And, and in turn, my role changes because uh, sometimes my role is to be really heavy handed in terms of like really providing a lot of the, the color of the record. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then other times it's more about me kind of getting out of the way of him and allowing him to sort of be really hands on about like really taking like a lot of times he'll build a track from scratch, you know, and uh, whenever he kind of comes from it in that angle, it's a different it's a different role as an engineer. So your your job at that point is really to help him just realize his vision on on a particular song. So it, interesting. it's I think, yeah. you know, and also whenever you work with someone for as long as me and Jay have worked together, our dynamics sort of 
um, is pretty fluid. You know, it's because it, sure. we all yeah. we know where each other's coming from in lots of ways. So it's it's um, it's a very fluid relationship. Whereas if I were to work with somebody, you know, fresh that I don't have that rapport and history with, there might be more of a of a guessing game, you know. Right. And you guys have worked on a really wide array of music. Yeah, you know, I think one thing I think is really great about our approach is that I don't feel like we really necessarily have a set in stone process, which allows us right. to sort of be diverse in terms of the type of music that we get to work on. Um, but I mean, it's like, you know, everything from, you know, like Cage the Elephant and Fiddler, uh, you know, real rock and kind of stuff that Hailstorm and Coheed and Cambria to like pop country, you know, to, you know, Little Big Town, Brandy Clark, Eric Church, Brothers Osborne. So it's, it's, a, it is a very wide, wide range. And, uh, and that's also what keeps it interesting. Cause you know, if we ever get really burnt out doing, you know, a country project or something, we can go off and we can work in something in, in you know, the rock realm <laughs> and, um, and be able to approach it with a whole different energy than if we were just working on one genre at a time. For sure. I, I, that's something I'm usually always recommending to listeners and uh, interns or, you know, people that I mentor around here is like, don't don't pinhole yourself into one genre like your your main favorite genre, because over enough time of doing this, you'll get bored of it. You'll start to do the same things and maybe you'll even start to hate it. <laughs> you know, it's like if you keep yourself open, you stay creative and, you know, keep working on other things. Yeah, I think it's really important whenever you're doing it for any long period of time to to constantly reinvent your process or reinvent what it is that you're doing, because uh, not only does it keep things from getting stale, but it keeps you creative and keeps you kind of like um, engaged, you know? Sure. And I think whenever I see guys that have been doing it for a long time that haven't really changed with the times, it gets kind of worn down, you know? And I, right. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I noticed that uh, Jay Joyce's studio is kind of like an old converted church. Yeah. And uh, what's it what's it like working in a one room studio? I mean, what challenges either production wise or, you know, technical wise, either one. Yeah. Happen in a one room studio or what benefits? Are yeah. There? You know, so um, originally we, when I started working with Jay, <clears throat> we were doing everything out of the basement of his house. And we were doing, I mean, we did that first KG Elephant record there. Actually, the first two, I think we did in the basement. And then uh, in Eric Church, the first few records we did uh, in the basement. When we were looking for a, a, a bigger room, we were really just trying to expand on this idea of a one-room studio. And really, the benefits are there are no walls really between you and the musicians. Like, you're right next to the guitar player, so you can kind of, like, look at him whenever, the, you know, a certain section's coming up, or you right. can kind of... There's so much communication that happens non-verbally, right. and uh, we were really trying to break down those barriers between the, you know, between Jay, myself, and the musicians as much as we can, uh, and still be able to deliver, like, you know, a commercially acceptable product. Sure. So, uh, you know, in, in his room, the way it's kind of set up is that, you know, there's the big area where, you know, you'd have the congregation and then the vestibule or the entryway to the studio, uh, to the church, we've converted into like a drum booth. So we, we mm. can isolate drums uh, in that space. And then uh, we have different little little nooks and crannies here and there where we can stick, you know, guitar amps and stuff. But in general, yeah. everybody will be will be working either on 
headphones in the main room and the drums will be isolated. Or sometimes we'll, you know, depending on what's going down, we'll have to just turn the speakers on and just crank it. Um, and, yeah. every, and everybody's just kind of in sharing the same space. Um, challenges yeah. for sure. Like whenever I'm, if I'm cutting drums in the main room, which we do often as well, like we'll put them up on a stage, uh, on the stage, yeah. you'll have the whole band up there. You know, you can't hear things in a very controlled way that you would normally be able to hear them in, obviously. So like when you're cutting drums, you know, you, there's a lot of a lot more of like recording it and then maybe like listening, listening back and back. kind of and getting yeah. a balance. And, you know, but you do it long enough to where you kind of know certain things are going to happen. There's certain, you know, places where you put certain room mics that are going to pick up things in a certain way. Uh, and then also right. you can kind of, you know, you can kind of feel, you know, the speakers kind of reacting when you when you're cranking them up next to the drums and be like, okay, well, there's some thump going on with the kick drum. So that's probably pretty good, uh, right. you know? Uh, and so a lot of times it's, you know, if you know your gear really well, um, you don't have to be in the most pristine listening environment for it to, um, to be able to get a good result. Right. Yeah. And, and man, good results you guys do get. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, a lot of the records you guys have worked on together, or even just you, I, I mean, I, I are some of my favorite records of the last 10 years. Um, you know, I, I love that Amos Lee record, Mountains yeah. of Sorrow. Um, that's that's a top 10 record for me. Oh, um, wow. That's great. And, you know, it's not just the music. Of course, the music is amazing, but I love how it sounds. And I, I love how, I think probably my favorite part about that record, and this is just me giving you you know, compliments on it, I guess. <laughs> I feel like, uh, I feel like every song on that record has such a bold vibe for that kind of thing, you know, yeah. for a folk record. There's a lot of bold choices made. Yeah. And like, there's that really dark snare on Johnson Avenue. There's the really dirty drums on High Water. Yeah. There's some of those weird, like, delay guitars and like, was that a synth sound? Was that, you know, like all these weird yeah. sounds. And, but at the same time, it all somehow, and I don't know how you guys did it, it feels cohesive. It still feels like an Americana record. Yeah. And it sounds timeless in a way that's not like, it's not trying to be super indie or super poppy or super anything. It just sounds great. Yeah. And, and I don't know how you did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the main thing, the common thread on that record is Amos, you know. Right. He's the guy that's going to bring the, uh, you know, the cohesive quality to it. And I think, you know, a lot of times on these records, what we try to do, I mean, kind of harpering back a little bit to the four track recorder days for me. I, I don't know if, if you've done much four track recording, but it's you have to be resourceful and you have to sort of make the most out of what you've got. And there's a spirit right. of like, like, okay, well, I only have one track for drums. So how am I going to make that cool or, or vibey or something, you know? And, and I right. used to, I remember when I was a kid, I would do a lot of things where, I, you know, I'd run microphones into guitar pedals and then, you know, sure. try to blend that in with the drum like try to get a vibe going. And, uh, and, and I'd have like really crappy mics or something, you know, but there was a sense of like, um, of exploration and a sense of like wonderment, like what can I, what can I do to to do something with this? And I got to do it now because I can't really like mix out the drums if it's on one track, you know? Right. So I think having just like a sense of playfulness when, 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 like for instance, on that Ames Lee record, it's like, 
a lot of that stuff was was we picked moments to sort of get really funky with things, you know, like so there's like yeah. a lot of those drums and stuff. It's like we got really aggressive with with a couple of them. But it's just kind of like having that sense of like we don't need to like play everything safe. We can kind of just we can kind of um, be bold with it and, and, and be experimental. Uh, and ultimately, Amos's vocal performance is going to save us no matter what we end up with (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean honestly it's kind of invincible record at that point oh yeah it's like you could do anything and it would sound (laughs) yeah well i mean you still love it yeah the fact is like um, any monkey could could record amos lee i mean he's just like (laughs) he's a great vocalist i mean honestly every bit of that that record is is live vocals with the band wow uh he, you know if you're lucky you get two takes with him and he's like ah that that's it you know <laughs> yeah um i have to know i mean there are some there's some of these there's a certain snare sound a lot of the records that you and jay work on have it's it's i would describe it as chewy okay um and I'm not I'm not quite sure exactly what it is, but it certainly doesn't sound like samples, you know. It, yeah, it, uh, there might be some blended or whatever, but it doesn't sound like fake drums. It doesn't sound like your typical snare. Like I'm the man that wants you kind of has it. It's this real kind of puffy. Um, definitely sounds like a sort of compression, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, or, or or maybe a certain room mic position or overhead position that you guys like that gets a. You know, I think even some of the Eric Church stuff has it where you, you know, when you hear it, it goes like, blah, and there's like this, you know, do you guys have any cool tricks for getting that kind of snare sound? So I think a lot of times what we're going for is length on our snare. Mm. So like we don't really want our snare to like just sort of sit there and just and just like you know plop on the two you know <laughs> you right. really wanted to give it a little bit of dimension uh so, and so length is a big thing that we are trying to achieve and there's various ways to do that you know depending on the space that you're recording it in or you know uh just depending on the drummer and the way he's hitting it um and uh, all sorts of things there's so many variables when it comes to drums a lot of times i tend to think of it as like the the snare needs to be a quarter note or a half note, you know, like it yeah, needs right. to fill the space. Fill the like entire musically. note. Yeah. And and so a lot of times you'll hear people bring in their drum kits or whatever, and it'll be like a, the equivalent of like a 30 second note kick and snare. And it's right. like, this is yeah, so, <laughs> this isn't filling up anything. It's so dead. And so like finding a way to get the length without being annoying. But mm-hmm. I, the other thing is, you know, whenever I track, <clears throat> track drums, um, I don't typically compress uh, the close mics at all really going down, uh, like right. my snare drum, it, it, it tends to get you into trouble later, uh, whenever you, you, you com- compress like a, the snare drum. But what I do do is whenever we're, we're getting a vibe on a song, I'll have some stuff going in parallel so we can mm. kind of get a sense of like what compression is going to do to it later. Sure. Um, when first getting your sound together, I, I tend to like having like, you know, distressor or something that's kind of running parallel to my to my dry stuff that kind of just amplifies it and kind of gives it a little bit of that um, a sense of, of, of space without it being something that's that's committed. Uh, the sure. other thing that I do um, is it's definitely there's a lot of room mics like um, I, I, right. I will record I'll record typically somewhere in the neighborhood of you know 14 tracks of drums, you know, typically. Sure. And it's not that I'm using all of those uh, at any given time. What I like to do and what Jay likes is having um, 
um, available stuff for scene changes later on. So, right. for instance, like the when when the song is going down, you want to have like where sections have new information coming in and coming and going, even if it's in a subtle way. It's things that kind of help keep the listener's interest throughout the course of a song. So right. we'll have all kinds of things, weird microphones, um, you know, cassette recorders. We'll have, um, you know, things going through guitar pedals and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, um, sure. and along with like sort of the main sort of nuts and bolts stuff. Um, and it really comes down to like, what's the vibe of the track? You know, are we going for something that's sort of like 70s sort of vibe, you know, in which case, you know, we'll use more like dynamic microphones or um, things are going to be a little bit more about like maybe some smaller, you know, and, and maybe a little bit more mid forward. Sure. Um, and then if we're going for something a little more modern-y or something that we're going to really crank on later, then it, the approach would be different, you know. So, for instance, like on High Water, that thing is just like a, a fuzz bomb, you know, and with, right. the, with the drums. But it kind of has a really cool pump pumping action. And on something like that, for instance, like I'm really thinking about using the um, using compression as a way to get subdivisions with the drums. Sure. So it's like you're getting that full quarter note, like what, what you're talking about with the snare. But then with the hi hats and stuff, with the compression pumping in a certain way, you can actually kind of simulate like a eighth or sixteenth note um, by the way that it's reacting. And I think sure. that things like that are, are really cool ways of sort of like getting drums to sort of explode. And then I think the other side of that, too, like on that song in particular, I think would be um, don't use too many microphones. Um, I think getting in, in the final blend, you mean in the final blend, it's like, you know what, get, you know, have one or two things that you're that you're blowing up and sort of let that be the the nuts and bolts of what you're going for. I think if if you start clouding it up with like bringing in a lot of direct microphones and stuff, then all of a sudden that whole experience of something really kind of going nuts gets watered mm -hmm. down, you know. Interesting. Yeah. So do you find that you guys are doing a lot of processing to the room mics on the way in rather than post? I would say it depends. So like certain room mics I'll I'll get crazy with. Other times sure. I'm like, oh, this is a, this mic sounds like like the drums in the room. You know, if there's like right. a really clear like, oh, wow, this is really that picture, then I may not mess this with it like at all. This is like the pure mic. Don't touch it. You know? Yeah. And so I'm like, OK, well, this particular like I've got this, uh, you know, one of those AEA R88s, oh, uh, yeah. which I just love. It's a great that's a great microphone. And there's a couple spots in our drum room and in the in the main room where I just know I put it there and it's just like a really great fat picture of a drum kit yeah. and so going down I'll, I'll usually have it going through like a, a you know like a zener or some sort of stereo compressor thing just doing a <laughs> yeah. little just a little yeah. something but not typically you know pressing down on anything um and also that makes me laugh because i my main go-to room mic position is a, a a taped down spot in my live room with an r88 going through a chandler zener <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> oh man so yeah so yeah. i mean that thing's it's great for that you know so um so don't mess with what it, preamp like, do you use on that uh so the thing we do so one thing that we did when we moved to the church is that we started deciding that that like we really wanted an old console sound um mm. And, you know, we have all these, you know, the boutique 500 series, this and that. And we had, you know, we've got a rack of Neves. We've got all of this really great outboard preamps and everything. But we are always chasing like this sound from like the 70s, you know, whereas like everything mm -hmm. kind of has a cohesive vibe about it. And um, 
So we uh, we actually searched out uh, consoles and we found this late 70s uh, Sphere Eclipse C oh, wow. console. You don't see those very often. Oh, they're very rare. I mean, I think they're seriously like of, of the C with uh, the little graphic slider EQs and stuff. I think there's only like somewhere like under 10 like they were wow. ever made of spheres in general i think they only had maybe 40 or 50 of them ever made so they're really really rare yeah i know joe barisi has like a couple of racked modules yeah yeah and that's we've got like it <laughs> i've got a whole console of those of those eqs um, which are just absolutely magical to me i use 90 percent of the console on on just you know just about everything the only exceptions cool. i usually like I'll, vocals usually are going through a neve um, and then occasionally if we're trying to go for something like, you know, odd or something, or if I want something real to be sounding or something, I might go to something else, but in general, right. uh, it's the console. So that's nice that you can, you know, it's not just like the SSL pre for snare bottom, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, wow, I can actually feel good using this on everything on everything. And actually it, it kind of, sometimes it, it, it was like. An intentional decision to do it too, you know, because it was mm -hmm. like, okay, I really want to embark this tonality and this kind of uh, harmonic character on everything, and by doing that, everything kind of has a sound together, you know. Right. Do you do you tend to push preamps pretty hard on lots of things? Uh, not necessarily. Some things, some things I will, but I would say in general, I it's pretty normal you know yeah um, yeah not super clean but not you know yeah i mean there's so the other thing that you know obviously the console has transformers um mm. so that kind of helps color it a little bit the other thing that we found early on was that we had this there's a we have this old uh, mci uh tape machine i guess jh 1624 track tape machine and it's got um uh transformers in it and um Originally, I was I was wanting to set it up so that we could easily cut the tape or go to Pro Tools at, at any sure. given point. And um, we found that just running through it, just going just, while it parked on input, has a really great tonality to it. It's it's really mm. kind of takes the edge off of digital or takes the edge off of that sort of super clean Pro Tools sound. And it kind of has um, a whole different vibe. So um, for years now, we've been running everything through the tape machine just parked on input. Interesting. But if we ever want to hit record, we could just reach over and hit record on on it and I've got tape ready to go at any time. Yeah. And that's we cool. can we can get that vibe yeah, too. That's that's definitely one thing I, I like about a lot of the records that you work on is that they sound they sound modern and bright and you know like expensive, right? Like uh -huh. they don't sound like lo fi records, but they have the vibe of some of those cool, weird, lo-fi indie records in terms of like, wow, this is interesting. And they don't sound like your typical clean, pretty Nashville record. Of course, right. some of those Nash, you know, some of those Nashville records sound amazing, really. Like sure. if you if we're all being honest, they sound amazing. Yeah, um, but it's like, yeah, 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 and it, or like some of the Michael Buble records. You know, it's like, wow, this is this is a good recording. Yeah, right. But <laughs> sometimes it's like. But I'm not really interested in it, you know. Like I listen yeah. to it once, and I and it doesn't grab me. I mean, what what advice do you have on that topic about getting things to sound bright and clear and modern without making it sound too hi-fi? I I sometimes have a problem because, like, when I grew up learning to record, a lot of the music I happened to like 
uh, and of course that was just partly the industry back then. Uh, uh, it was high budget records, you know, it was, yeah. it was like high budget, all major label only. That's what was there in the industry. There was right. no home recording. There was no SoundCloud. There was no YouTube, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I grew up learning, well, this is how records sound, you know? And then over the last 10, 20 years, especially with home recording, people have been like, you know, maybe we can do some more interesting stuff. What can we do? You know, so what what advice maybe can you give on that? Like how to make stuff sound modern, but not too clean and hi-fi and pretty. First off, what I would say, I, like you, I tended to lean towards expensive sounding records when I was younger. Because right. uh, you're that's always the thing that you're like, I was coming off of four track. So I'm like running away from the four track because I was like, I've got all of these, uh, these options available to me now. But sure. I would say... Um, over the years, what I've learned is pick your moments. So like in a song, for instance, you may be like, okay, well, this element's bright, but these other elements don't need to be. So maybe what I'll do is I'll shave off a ton of top end on these other things and then allow the bright thing to be the bright thing, you know? Mm. So I think um, finding finding things to be like, okay, well, this I can kind of be tr trashier with, and this is going to be really pretty and flowy. Uh, and then and kind of finding a, a blend between those things so that you have contrast in your in your in your recordings and i think that kind of helps sort of fill that gap that you're talking about where it's like i think having things that are accessible uh and like not necessarily super pristine kind of adds a, a a character and a quality to them that kind of tell a story sure and um and i think if you can add some of that and find moments for those sort of things to exist then you're really kind of helping helping the song you're supporting the the, the track you know yeah, um, like on a lot of a lot of the records you guys have done in in the country world, uh, I tend to find it's like the vocal and the acoustic guitar are the prettier thing, right? Yeah, but then the drums and guitars will be this it, other world. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's and, and that's where you can kind of get away with things. You know, it's funny when we first were making country records, we didn't know what we were doing, so we were just kind of like, let's we're, let's just approach them like we're making a rock record. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, on Eric Church's first album, uh, that was the first country record that we had done, and wow. um, <laughs> and so we and so there was like we were like there was like this really cool banjo part, and our first instinct was, wow, banjo is really annoying sounding, so let's. <laughs> <laughs> let's distort the living crap out of it and um and so that's what we did we just kind of like played around with it from like a you know sonically like just distorted yeah. it and just kind of made it a thing and uh it ended up being like one of his first singles and stuff and and all the feedback coming back from the from radio stations and stuff were like yeah you know we really like it but what's up with the distorted banjo <laughs> <laughs> And back wow, in that day, cool. like that was like sacred ground that you're not supposed to like you can't distort a banjo. Now right. you listen to country radio and it's all all no holds barred, you know. Um, yeah. But at it's that time, of, it was kind of like kind of funny what is, you can get away with now. 808s and trap oh, yeah. hats and <laughs> everything. All kinds of stuff. Everything. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah. So I think, you know, sometimes what you were saying as far as like vocals and acoustics tend to be pretty because in country that is kind of where the story is you know and it's sure and it's still a very lyric based story type genre even though i never listen to lyrics i i don't know the, the mm. lyrics of the song usually until we are printing the mix <laughs> and then i'm like oh that's what the song's about you know i tend to notice lyrics if it's either if they're really bad or if they're like 
stunningly great. Otherwise, hmm. I don't really even notice them until, like I said, until we're printing them. But um, <laughs> but, no, that's what that song's about. Yeah, it's like oh, that's interesting to me was, because a lot was, of uh, a lot of engineers and producers will take cues from the lyric to think, you know, how might I approach this song based totally. on what it's about, right? And yeah, um, and, and, I, and you, I have to say, like sometimes that still is the case. I'm kind of over -gener sure. generalizing it, but um, but typically speaking, like I said, if it's a if it's a great lyric, then you're like, oh man, that moment is. Like that is a thing. We should totally like empty out and allow this to be, you know, a thing. Or we'll, uh, you know. And, but I tend to focus more on like cadences and melody. Like I'm a me I'm a melodic guy, um, mm. and I'm I'm also like a singer. So I'll sing on on records. I'll sing background vocals and stuff like that on on a, cool. a lot of the records. So um, I'm I'm very much like harmonic and like like melodic and cadences and all that kind of stuff. So it's very vocal focused. Just sometimes I don't know the words. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, you see, it's basically everything but the actual the actual <laughs> the actual language, yeah. So yeah, um that's it's interesting because uh, I've done a couple records working with uh, some foreign artists. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't understand the words and and I thought it would be incredibly difficult, but it's not as hard as it seems because it's like, well, most of the vocal is still there. Yeah. It's, it's all still there. It's just, I, it's not in English. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't, well, I, I I can't love, understand. I love Seeger Ross. Seeger yeah, Ross records are too. amazing. They sound great. And it's complete gibberish. There's no, it's not even a language. It's not, he's not mm -hmm. singing Icelandic, which is what I thought it was forever. And then it's like, no, it's just, it just sounds, I'm like, man, you can get away with that. That's crazy. Yeah, I think I think on some of the the first record or two, it's it is Icelandic, but then it became just now it's just nothing. Now yeah. it's just a, it's like just a gibberish language he's made up. <laughs> and I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so I mean, great. and it's still somehow, and it, it, I can't even explain it. It it's like he tapped into a weird like human nerve. Yeah, you know, and he and he pokes it, and it's like it feels like something, even though it's complete. <laughs> <laughs> but it's super it, emotional like it, it, it yes. resonates you can tell it's like the emotion still comes through even though it doesn't you're not saying anything yeah no it's it, it's great and and um so I, I would say that you know typically like in country like a like the vocal and the acoustic are the storytelling elements and then sure. like with drums again i think we kind of approach it like we would anything else i think listening for okay is it do we want this to be kind of like a retro sounding you know, drum kit for the song, or is it needed to be modern? I mean, those are kind of the first two questions I I kind of try to answer or sum up either at the beginning of a record where like, okay, this is going to be the vibe for the whole thing, or at least at the beginning of the song. Okay, what like are we going to do like a a small like vintagey kick drum, which kind of informs the entire drum sound, or are we going to sure. kind of you know pull out the DWs and the you know all that stuff? And and I would say you know a lot of times you know from an engineering standpoint, I think some of those choices for us are going to be microphone choice um, and placement, and then EQ choices whenever we're going down, you know. Um, and so for like drums, for instance, you know, I think like I was saying before, like like, you know, the old like 70s drum sounds much less EQ going on. You know, it's definitely mm. a lot more sort of like pokey in the in the frequencies that we would typically cut out of a uh, in a modern recording. So like that right. four or five hundred range for for drums are kind of like that's the big, big area of like, OK, if you want it to be more 70s, then 
bring in some of that, you know, the, the, the five or, you know, four or 500. Yeah. Range. It's like go against your gut to you add bottom against, and top. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, you're really just kind of getting some, you want it to be meaty. That's where the meat's at. And then if we're going for something more modern then yeah, you'd scoop that stuff out. You know, the more modern microphones kind of inherently have a little bit of a, a dip in those areas anyways. Um, sure. So, um, so do you tend to, <clears throat> then, I mean, you know, obviously it, it starts with a source change, right? Like tiny kit, old heads or whatever. Do you tend to use like different mics and positions for, for those types of things? Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think we'll do things where um, I'll I use more like dynamic type microphones, more ribbon microphones. Right. Um, if I'm going for something more thuddy and, and sort of like, you know, that world. And then if we're doing like a modern sort of recording and you I'd use more condensers, you know, um, it, kick drum wise, which um, is an area where there's really for me only like two or three choices of, as far as microphones that I like to use on it. But like, that sort of like thuddy sort of 70s sort of sound. I'll, I'll use a um, an EV666 mic for the kick mm, drum. Yeah. And then uh, and then if I'm doing uh, something that's a little bit more modern-y, I'll, I'll, I'll do a D, you know, D12, which is not like a modern mm. kick drum mic, but it's it's kind of yeah, gives a little bit more of that extension. It's got a lot of low end, yeah. Uh, and then also I really love like Sony, um, the C, what is it? The C, oh, C500. See, oh, it, okay. so it's got a, it looks like a big it's got a big round um, top on it. Um, and mm. uh, and that's so that's and that's a pretty fancy sort of sounding kick drum mic, but it's it, it can do lots of different things. But for me, it's like that's it's those three microphones are my kick drum choices. Typically, sometimes I'll I'll throw in one of those um, those Yamaha sub kick deals. Sure. Uh, and you're mostly micing on the outside. Yeah, I don't. So a big thing for me that I see from like young guys is that they'll they'll stick something like really inside it, you know, pretty, pretty deep and get a lot of that, you know, the tacky, tick, ticky stuff. Right. I'm I always tend to run away from that sound. Um, right. I would always prefer it to be a little more chesty. And so I'm I'm typically always just miking the outside of the kick drum. So like right outside of a sound hole, if that's if that's what they've got or finding sort of like where uh, if it's a no head type situation, you kind of can feel around when the player's kicking and you can kind of feel where the energy's coming from, where, you know, wherever right. the, the, the puff is coming from and we'll place it there. And then the other thing that's real important is the drummer's beater. If it's sure. using, uh, uh, we call it we call it this puffy beater that we love. We call it the rabbit because it kind of looks like a fluffy, you know, rabbit tail <laughs> yeah. or something. Uh, and I love that thing. I think it sounds. I can get as much attack out of it as I want still, um, but I, it, it has a real sort of uh, sort of um, just chilled out uh, top end, and uh, <clears throat> it gives you a lot of thump. And then, yeah. you know, and then if you need something more modern, even, you know, like a more modern sort of beater with, you know, either a felt beater or, or you know, the plastic ones, just depending on what you're going for. But that's a huge part of the sound of a of a kick drum is the beater, sure. the player, obviously, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and the amount of the amount of deadening. Um, so there, there's lots of different variables as far as getting drum sounds. But um, what do you what do you tend to do on overheads? So I I alternate through with a few different things um <clears throat> lately i've been doing like 47s on you know like a glenn johns thing that's been kind of like mm. 
the my latest thing. I go in and out of love with that, and it depends sure. on the, it depends on the drummer. Uh, it depends on the overall vibe of the the, the project too. Um, the record we were working it was like kind of like a rock thing, and uh, and we were really thinking about having these big guitars spread out wide. So the Glenn Johns kind of vibe on on um, on drums kind of made sense because you could kind of just sort of you know have that kind of in. You can make it a little bit maybe a little bit more mono, and then uh, and then allow the the guitars to sort of occupy the 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 wide the wide spots. Um, sure. But then I'll do some, so I'll do that with 47s or sometimes 121s, like the Royers. Mm, um, yeah. And then I, and then I'll do like a space pair sometimes with like 582s, uh, which are like, you know, those pencil tube condenser mics. Mm. Um, so I'll use 582s. Um, I love the way coals sound on overheads. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've used the R88 as overheads a few times, yeah. uh, and I've loved that. You have to be a little bit more aware of what's above the drum kit, uh, with that. Cause sometimes you get a little bit of phasiness or, or sort of comb filtering. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was actually a question I had, uh, regarding, especially in the big room. Do you yeah. find yourself using a lot more like tight polar patterns? Like do you use omnis and you know what's I mean, interesting? He, what's interesting about a, recording in a big room is a whole different set of challenges. So for me, the big thing about drums in a big space is that room mics really quickly become reverb, and I don't, right. I don't like that. <laughs> right. I like my, I like my room mics to sort of be that subdivision element, or I like them to give me like this urgency off the drums that's not like a close mic, but kind of gives me like some some power. And when you put them in a big room, it gets washed out pretty easily. Right. So when I record drums in, in a big space, I'll tend to bring in some baffling, some um, diffusers and all that kind of stuff and kind of build sort of a thing around the drums just to try to give maintain the urgency uh, to, to, for my room mics. Um, so yeah, I would say that's the biggest challenge for me is that, you know, you look, you look at the space, you're like, man, drums are going to sound awesome in here. And then you pull up your microphones and it's like, wow, did I, did I put reverb on everything? <laughs> yeah. They sound 50 feet away and it's like, well, yeah, yeah like there's a, the there's power? that sweet spot of dimension and depth, but also, oh, it still sounds like I have some detail on this kit. Yeah, yeah. And and you need that. You, it's got to have urgent. It's got to be powerful. So that's the biggest challenge. And, and, and drums in a small room actually work really great because of that, I think, because it's there's something pretty immediate for the sound to bounce off of and and back into your your room microphones. Um, right. Yeah. So to answer your question, I don't really change per se what m microphones I would choose for that. But I would but I adjust definitely the space to try to accommodate um mm -hmm giving giving things more more objects to sort of bounce off of now you mentioned earlier that uh you you have kind of a drum booth now yeah. at the studio did you always have that or was it added later well so it was always the entryway but we didn't really cut drums in there very much we would cut them either in the big room or we have like this really small like it was it, it used to be like the cry room you know at a <laughs> <Yeah>. church <laughs> And so, yeah. but the, in the cry room area there, the ceilings were really low and, uh, and it made it really challenging to not get that sort of, um, phasey or comb filtery thing on your overheads yeah. on cymbals. Um, that seemed to be the biggest challenge in that space. So, um, so we, we decided that we were going to develop that, that entryway as the drum booth. And we went through a lot of different 
changes in that space over the years, just trying to like hone it in. And recently what we did is we took out the ceiling completely and the floor wow. above. So it's a two story space. And uh, we took out the so basically like there's these open rafters that go 20 feet up. So the wow. rooms is is kind of like um, it's long and, and narrow ish and it goes way up high. And then we put in like a catwalk so you can huh. kind of you can still walk up the, on the, the, the floor above. But um, there's no reflection point there. And then sure. and then that also allows us to roll out a carpet on top if we want to if we want to deaden it so we'll have a carpet that's upside down that we'll roll out oh, so it kind of gives us a little bit of like a deadening quality and then we also have curtains going around the room so we can either open up the curtains or we can there's a bunch of different things we can do uh sonically so it really opened up a lot of options in terms of of um yeah available colors and stuff yeah do you, do you find yourself tracking in there more often these days yeah i would say in general uh the other thing that it's got going for it too is that there's a this gigantic tile bathroom that's directly next to it and mm. so we can actually we can open it if we want reverb we can just open that door up and it's got sure. everything that you want you got um, a chamber yeah it's basically it's a really cool sounding chamber actually um so uh we cut drums back there a lot and and I really I like the sound. I like I like what that is. I, but just like anything, I think you if you do something too much, then you're kind of you, we don't want to be pigeonholed. You know what I mean? We don't want to just do one thing. So we're constantly bringing the drums back out in the big room or we're you know taking them to some other space or doing something just to try to just to keep things fresh, you know. So, But I love I love that room. I think it sounds great. So what's your general approach? We, let's go back to, you know, we talked about prettiness and. You know, a lot of times country music, the vocal is a pretty thing and the brighter, maybe more hi-fi thing. Um, when when you do need something to be bright, what methods do you have for that? I feel like we're in the last 10, 15 years, obviously, we still are kind of in the loudness war situation. But I feel like we've also been in a brightness war situation <laughs> where a lot of records, especially, you know, by people, particular mixers with three names, <laughs> are very bright <laughs> and yeah, they right. sound great but they're very bright and what's what are your some of your tricks for getting bright clear sounds is it you know start all the way at the mic i assume yeah i think it starts there i think everything kind of starts there um i don't know that i necessarily have like any tricks per se on that but like for like vocals and stuff there are certain things where you know you, to try to really open them up and just kind of get them to come out you know um, right. come out of the speakers. And I think like, for instance, like on background vocals, you know, like I really like the, like the, um, the Mog or is it the Mog? Mag? Oh yeah, Mog. yeah, yeah. I like that little air knob on that thing. Um, I think that yeah. does really cool things with background vocals, especially if, if they're feeling a little closed off, you can kind of just w wake them up a bit. And in general, like on, a, on acoustic guitars, it's about it's, you know, maybe less about adding top in and, and it, versus clearing out mud. You know, sure. so so, you know, pulling stuff out of those sort of like thuddy sort of gunky areas and then just kind of shifting everything up. The other thing I, I do like to do uh, in terms of adding clarity is I'll um, uh, the you know, like the fab filter EQs, which I, I, I love all the fab filter plugins. Sure. But, um, you know, I'll do a shelf, you know, a big shelf type thing or not shelf, but um, the tilt, the tilt EQ oh, function yeah. on that. And so I'll just go ahead and, and grab it and just kind of like find a good spot where I can kind of bring up all that stuff. And then I typically will still filter out a lot of the super top end stuff like, I'll, you know, anything above 
you know, 15 K or for 10 K sure. or something, you don't really need anything up there typically on anything, <laughs> but, um, right. But yeah, so I mean, I'll do things like that where I'll like, I'll super exaggerate, uh, something and then I'll, I'll get rid of stuff that's right above it. Uh, and I'll, I'll do the same thing on the bottom, you know, where I'll, maybe I'll, sure. I'll boost up, you know, a hundred on, a, you know, on a base or something, but then I'll quickly filter out the stuff that's, you know, directly below it. So it, you get the sense of something being, uh, bassy or tubby, but then you don't have all that extended low end that just murks up the works, you know? Yeah. Uh, you kind of like focus the energy on that one yeah. spot and you're kind of you're able with like the a tilt EQ or something you're able to kind of like nudge it forward in a certain area but you're not you're not having to also pay the price of having all this extended stuff that doesn't make any sense um mm. i really like some of the um that retro color or rc color um plugin. Oh, uh, rc20 yeah the rc yeah the rc20 very cool plugin yeah it's really great and i use it i use it a lot for um you know, the, the distortion on it is really what I, I really use a lot of. I specifically mm. really love like the transformer part of it where you can kind of heat it up, but it doesn't sound like distortion. It almost has mm. more of a compression vibe to it. Um, yeah. And then and but I use that that EQ on there in, in the same sort of way where you can just kind of like create a range and then just sort of like focus all the energy in a certain spot. And it really allows you to you know quickly sort of adjust the extremities and and um, and super focus in on something, give it a little bit of oomph, and then you can kind of blend you know blend the mix knob on it. And um, I think that's a really powerful tool. That that thing sounds great to me. Yeah, just like instant vibe creation. I mean, yeah. that's a cool plugin. Yeah, and now, it's also I love that it has so many like it has those individual modules, and sometimes you know you don't really know what you need, and you're kind of like I just want to play around, and oh, I yeah. love that. It's like its own little pedal board. Well, and I love I love like this. I love um, the Saturn plugin. The uh, sure for the same reasons. It's like I don't know. This needs something. And then you can just kind of f scroll around in presets for a while, and then like, ooh, that what's that? That was an accident, but that's kind of right. neat. And then it kind of gives you something to sort of like like start messing with. A lot of times, it's it's knowing that there's something that is wrong, or there's something that's sitting there and uninspiring, and then just knowing that okay, I need to mess with this. And I don't know how right. I'm going to mess with it yet, but I'm just going to keep like be on a search for it. Sure. Um, and sometimes that's all you that's what that's the that's the journey that you need to be uh, like aware of and like up for the the journey on. <laughs> right. Well, and that's like uh, goes back to like the playfulness thing that you talked yeah. about, you know, like just just have fun with it like you did when you started, you know, like. I, I think it's funny, like when I first started, a lot of it was like, all right, so this sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> how can I make how can I make it interesting? And I was just trying to make it not suck, you yeah. know. But but in doing that, you you discover like, wow, vocals through a rat kicks ass. Yeah. Like right. <laughs> and then you're like, I want to do that on everything. Yeah. And then you try it on on drums and you're like, oh my gosh, this pedal's amazing. And I'm then you start doing it on, on every, everything. You put rat on your two mix, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, and then, but then it's 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 as you get better and you start getting better sounds, and and then sometimes it's easy to to forget that you know that yeah. where you started, and and forget that it's not always about just getting a, a great capture. Yeah. Um. Now I want to go back really quickly. You mentioned um you know getting clarity on things um in terms of scooping out a lot of things. One thing me and a friend of mine, Charlie, have talked about is they make 
I feel like a ton of microphones nowadays are just way too bassy. Yeah. It's like they know that we mic stuff close for isolation, for intimacy, for immediacy. Like they know this, right? <laughs> I mean, surely. And and it's like, I just feel like so many mics out there, they just go down to 10 hertz, you know? Yeah. And, and it's so, the proximity effect is so strong. And it's like, we're, we're all just going to cut that out. Yeah. I mean, are there any mics that you have that you particularly like on, you know, things like acoustic that tend to get boomy, like yeah. obviously on like electric guitars and snares, it's like, okay, a, a 57 or something is not going to get that boomy. Right. Um, even if you're pretty close, but like yeah, acoustic guitar can get. Yeah. So mod boomy. Modern microphones to me have a lot of extended top end too. Like it's it, sure. it, 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 the focus thing is, is, is a big deal. Um, acoustic guitar is, is interesting, you know, so first off it starts with the instrument, you know, um, and then, mm -hmm. you know, there are times when, you know, I'll mic a, an acoustic with, with a 57 or an SM five. Sure. Um, or, you know, um, depending on where you want it to sit in a track and the type of vibe you're going for it. Like if it's really aggressive, well, sticking, you know, like a really flowery, you know, pencil condenser on something where, where the guy's banging away and he's, and he's trying to be a rock, you know, part of the rock scene or whatever. Right. It's, um, it's completely counterproductive. So you, you need to kind of match the energy of the player and the instrument and the song with the microphone. Um, so I would say for like the flowery stuff, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got, uh, you know, a great 67, you know, I've got some great, sure. um, you know, C12s and uh, that sound wonderful. Those 582s, if I'm, if I'm not using them on overheads, are really great acoustic mics. Um, mm. So I'll try all kinds of different things with that in mind. But then other times it'll be like a 121, you know, have a have a ribbon mic there. You know, if it's a if it's the singer that's playing, uh, playing acoustic, you know, you have to kind of have something that has some figure eight ability to be able sure, to get to some sort null of out the vocal to null out the vocal. So uh, so there's choices that are made out of utility um, in that regard. Mm. Um so uh, I, I would say there's not really like there's uh, you know, there's not really many modern like n brand new microphones that I, I typically use. I just don't have any of them. I have um, mm. I've got a bunch of these really cool old things that we, we tend to use all the time. Uh, but, sure. it, you know, tube condensers, tube mics um, just tend to tend to sound cool. And uh, and then also dynamics, like don't be afraid of sticking a 57 on there or or a uh, this SM5, which is like, a, I don't know if you guys are f familiar with those, but it's like, a, no, I'm not. If you see like old radio um, images of people talking on these big things that look like pill, like a pill case right. kind of looking microphones, if you take the 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 baffling off of those or the the fuzzy parts off it kind of has it looks almost like a 57 in this weird cage um hmm. but it's got this really great focused sort of sound about it that is really cool on acoustic guitar it probably is great on other things but i've once i kind of stumbled on that uh, on acoustic it's like it's kind of you know one of those that i use on one thing um sure and I pair that with a cloud lifter, um, typically because right. it it's a, it is a pretty low level type microphone. But and and on on uh, acoustic instruments, you really need to have some some volume. So that's a that's a great mic. Um, also, um, this uh, Sennheiser made a it's like a podium mic. It's a four hundred eight uh, podium hmm. mic that and that's also it's a dynamic mic, but it's actually a really great acoustic guitar mic too. Interesting. Little is it like little tiny? 
kind of gooseneck thing? No, it's thing? kind of like, um, you know what it is? It's the same capsule as a, uh, as a four, uh, the 409. Is it 409? Oh, like uh, 609. Yeah, like the 609. Yeah, um, a little square flat mic. Yeah, the square flat mic. It's the same capsule, but they put it in this, like, it looks like a, it looks like a golf ball on the end of a <laughs> stick. <laughs> and, Interesting. Um, and it's a really, it's a really cool, um, cool acoustic mic. It's got a, it's got a, that same sort of thing where it's like, it's really sort of focused mid rangey. It doesn't have any of the flowery top or the super tubby bottom. And, uh, and it's a really, it's, it's interesting vibe. Have you tried the, uh, the new, well, I guess it's relatively new, the SE Dynamite? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, little inline preamps. Uh-uh. I've, I've recently switched to one of those from a cloud lifter. Oh. Um, I would say just. From what I can tell, it's got more gain and lower noise. Cool. I like that. Which, yeah, because I love the Cloud Lifter. We all have one. I mean, geez, it, <laughs> it's yeah. uh, just around because it does the thing. But you got to think that technology's improved and, you know, especially the noise department of electronics, you know, it's something that is always improving, it seems. Yeah. Man, it's, and it, it's right into an XLR barrel. Yeah. Uh, so you don't even need a second cable. That's great. Man, I, I bought one, and then I ended up buying four. <laughs> because, uh, you know, if I'm using the R88 as a, as a room mic on a on a cello or something, you yeah. know, you're going to have to crank that up. So I, you can just pop two of those in right on the patch, and there it is, you know, and it's well, really you know, handy. I started running into that a lot when I'm moving into the church. Because now all of a sudden we have these incredibly long cable runs for certain things. And we would right. pick up uh, RF and all kinds of garbage along the way. Cause you, and and um, by amplifying it more at the source uh, and allowing it to travel down the lines at a, at a higher level, uh, and it allowed the noise floor got greatly reduced. Oh, um, for sure. And so I would do and things. It, it stays I, more stable, uh, you know, with impedance and all that. Oh, yeah. And I would, and I used to also would, I've got, you know, like a little lunchbox uh, and I would stick some, you know, APIs or some, uh, the, the Cappy stuff, which I'm a huge, huge fan sure. of, of the Cappy uh, preamps and EQs. And yeah, me too. Jeff Steiger is, is a friend and he's, he's the, he's the dude. Um, but I would, I would stick those at, you know, pretty close to the source and it allowed me to go ahead and get my preamp gain up before traveling down the long lines. And so there are certain right. times, like if we're doing drums or something on the stage where I'll still do the same thing where I'll, I'll stick, you know, a, a lunchbox up there and, uh, and do that. But, you know, it, it just sort of depends on the vibe, but, um, but yeah, I think uh, keeping that in, in mind for long cable runs is, uh, is critical. Sure. So what's, uh, let's talk a bit about bass. Uh, I, I used to struggle with bass a lot, and I, I actually still struggle with bass some. What what general approaches you guys have to bass? I now this isn't a a slide of any kind, but I I don't really tend to notice the bass really prominently in a lot of the records you guys have worked yeah. on. Like I wouldn't say it's like subby or you know what I right. mean. Like you guys have very controlled like bassist in a band kind of bass sound. Yeah. Um. You know what 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 can you say on that? You know, I it's interesting because for me, bass is one of those things where it's, it's really about the player and the instrument. And for me, I tend to I tend to just try to capture it as as best as I can. Um, and it, dealing with low end in general, I think is kind of more directly to your question, maybe um, 
And and uh, kind of in the same way that I was talking about with the EQing of like an acoustic, it's, you know, for me, it's about like finding where the energy of the instrument is and then um, and then making sure that you don't have a lot of this like superfluous, you know, tubby low end that just eats up everything sure. um, and finding just kind of finding where the energy is supposed to be, you know, uh, for like, a you know, an old P bass in a rock thing, you know, I'm, I might push forward like 800 or some of those mid, mid frequencies to sort of like give it a little barky quality. And then conversely, if it's not supposed to be like that, I might dip that same frequency out to kind of give it a little bit more of a sure. scoop, sort of like just kind of like engulfing you in low end as opposed to like really poking out at you. Um, Do you tend to use an amp and a DI or I, both? I'm typically or just... more a, just a DI guy. Uh, okay. Blending in an amp for me has always put me down like a phase rabbit hole where I've always been sure. like, I'm not, and I've, is it right? Is it kind of off? It, you know, I've got all these, like those shifter, the, um, the little labs, um, yeah. box where you can kind of like sort of shift the phase around a little bit to try to find where the focus is. I tend to f- end up messing with that so much. And honestly, the plugins these days is so great and giving, giving you like the ampy kind of sound and you don't have to worry sure. about phasiness. Uh, so I typically really like just doing the DI and then, um, but then I'll go through like, um, like the retro stay level, um, compressor going sure. in, which to me is just like the best bass compressor on earth. And then you, you're using the console and I'll, again, with EQ, it's like, I'll typically give it a little bit of hundred, you know, or sometimes a little something lower just to kind of give it a little bit of help and a little oomph. Also, I do like the, um, the tone hammer, um, DI that's got like a little EQ oh, yeah. on it. That thing's really, really powerful in terms of uh, sculpting a bass tone uh, going in. Um, So that's a really great box. So in general, it's kind of it it sort of depends. But most of the time, it's it does still come down to like a really great sounding bass and a bass player that knows where to put his fingers or her fingers to um, to make it tubby or, you know, get back on the bridge if you want to, like, make it barky sounding. Uh, So a lot of that comes down to the player. And if it's a bad yeah, it's, player and a bad sounding bass, there's really nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. I remember very vividly the first time I worked with a really great session bass player. And I was like, man, I killed it on the tones today. <laughs> it's like the easiest job. <laughs> and you in realize, the world. <laughs> wow, they're they play evenly. I don't have to compress them. I their tone is consistent. It's, you know what I mean? It's, oh, yeah. it's everything. Everything is better. Night and day. I mean, oh, it's yeah. not even, and it's like, it records itself. Yeah, um, it really because does. Because they just, it, it's like whatever the key is, whatever the thing, they're going to grab a bass, they're going to put their fingers in a certain spot, they're going to play a certain, you know, amount of percussiveness or or super light or with the thumb or whatever. And it's just, it just fits. And it's like, oh, go figure. That's what a musician does. They listen and respond just yeah. like we do. Yeah. And they they try to fit around their environment. I, I would say that one thing that I in post that we we tend to mess with a lot or or fight is whenever you know bass players will kind of just sort of like sustain over all the parts of the song. You know they'll, they'll just kind of mm, keep yeah. just kind of like making all their notes long and and gushy. And man, really great old bass parts and bass players there's holes there's a hole for like the snare drum when the snare drum hits the sure. bass will cut off and then and then get right back down on the kick drum things like that that i think um i think 
uh, and that's really a player in arrangement and production technique. But I think it does help whenever you're mixing a record to like if I get tracks in from somebody and and I'm and the and the the track is just sort of sitting there and it's missing a little dance with the with the bass and drums. That that's that's an area where you can kind of create a little bit of of a of a thing is is by just cutting off notes a little shorter uh and you can kind of get in there and carve those things out um right so yeah i've noticed that on on especially like like six eight ballads if that bass just sustains that entire bar yeah it's just it's just like oh and it's just sitting there and you're like wow this doesn't move at all yeah there's (laughs) no movement and it can just it doesn't yeah, it doesn't have any feel. It doesn't help with that 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 weight of like the six eight kind of feel. Yeah, it's all over the place. I mean that that's an that's an area. If I were to if you know if I spend time on a bass, it's typically it's it's shortening some notes or or that. Uh, and the mm. other thing about it, you know, as far as bass player performance, I don't know that I've ever been mad at a bass player that's playing behind the beat a little bit. Sure. Um, it, rushing bass is the worst sound on earth. Um, but if a bass player is kind of like just a little bit behind the pocket, that typically is a really cool thing. It allows the kick drum to sort of develop a little bit and then you kind of, you know what I mean? So, um, sure. That's a, it's maybe a little bit of a nerdy, uh, thing to talk about, but whenever you're looking at, I get what you mean. Yeah. A pocket, a pocket of a bass player and a drummer is like really, really important. Sure. What about, uh, what about keyboard sounds? I noticed, especially on like, a lot of the, I mean, obviously country music's had a long history of organs and pianos oh, and, yeah. you know, but like on that Amos Lee record, again, there's a lot of really bold, interesting key sounds that are either real dirty or compressed. And, you know, especially today, like most people, especially a lot of my listeners or most uh, project studios, you know, we can't have 10 pianos available, you know, so oh, yeah. we're using virtual instruments. What what types of things do you guys do on on well, pianos and organs? We have a lot of keyboards. <laughs> we have a lot of right. we do have a lot of uh, options. I mean, it, part of the thing is is that a lot of these old those old keyboards just have a really great sound coming out of the the outputs of those the keyboards. It's software since still don't quite capture right and some of it's probably because it's maybe a little wrong there might be some distortion or something that's sure. got clean that's somehow gotten cleaned up in the algorithms and um but so we have a lot of keyboards uh, and then also we do use a lot of s- software synth like omnisphere and you know lots of that sure. kind of stuff you know on organ i uh we are really there's like you know you can get a, a reverb mod on there so your reverb from the organ is actually hitting the Leslie, uh, which is, which is a really cool sound. Mm. Um, and then as far as like the really crazy stuff, I would say, you know, there's, you know, just like anybody else going through and searching for patches on stuff, we, we do the same sort of thing. Uh, and then we'll do things where we layer, you know, certain sounds together to create something. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have a process or anything as far as capturing keys, other than sure. like recording a piano, um, and we have we have a, a series of upright pianos in um, in the studio. Actually, with the Amos Lee record that you referenced earlier, I think we still had a, a there was a Steinway that we had for a while, and I think that record was was with that. But we have like these old <laughs> these old um, garage sale pianos that we use now, uh, and actually they were just a little bit more interesting sounding. I mean, Steinways are amazing. Hmm. 
But be honest with you, the Alicia Keys Steinway plug-in thing for native instruments yeah. sounds pretty close to the Steinway we had. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, like that thing's, that thing's pretty cool. So, um, so if we're going for like that sort of expensive piano sound, um, right. that works really well, but I tend to want a piano that has just a little bit of, you know, has some warts in it, has a little bit of character. Mm. So yeah, we've got this, my favorite one that we have is called, uh, McPhail which is super inspiring when you're sitting in front of it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's, it's like, it's kind of got this really sort of dark quality to it, but it's, I don't know, it's just really musical sounding. And, uh, and I've gone on a journey as far as like how to mic, uh, upright piano. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, there's so many, gosh, it's a, it's a weird instrument. It's know? a weird instrument. Big, big square. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's clunky, you know, like you got the hammers yeah. that are really loud. I mean, I always take the face off of it so you can kind of get right to the hammers and stuff, but, but it's, it's noisy. The, the keys are, are real rattly, you know? Right. And so lately what I've done is actually miking it from, from behind and mm. I'll use a, um, I've got a, um, a Neumann, uh, stereo 69, um, mm, which is yeah, a really, it's a great microphone. And, um, and I just mic the back of it and it really helps sort of like tame all the noisy stuff, but it kind of, and it's also real sustainy sounding back there, which is cool. Mm. Um, and you, you'd be surprised how much attack you can still get out of it from behind. Sure. Um, so I, I do that. And then the other thing that we'll do is maybe mic it with another mic, like either a 57 or a, um, like an SM five or, or some other microphone. Sometimes we uh, will run that into uh, some sort of processing, whether it's, you know, maybe I'll, I'll take that and I'll make that really aggressively like, uh, either distorted or compressed or something that kind of gives me a little bit more action. Um, sure. like attack action, or we'll run that through like guitar pedals. Um, and there's like mm. a, all kinds of new, cool, like synthy kind of guitar pedals, uh, that are oh, out yeah. there that you can run a microphone into from a, from a acoustic piano. And it sounds really great. Yeah. We're in like a pedal renaissance right now. <laughs> it's, got, it's amazing. The stuff that's gosh, coming out man. is really sophisticated and amazing. It is. It's like high, like better tech than what was in like 80s rack units that cost oh, yeah. thousands of dollars i mean yeah. it's it's and pretty mind-boggling it's amazing and i mean to me like that's where all the funk is like finding like cool ways to integrate that stuff in different ways is is where it's at you know for sure i would encourage people to to get like spend less money on microphones and buy more guitar pedals <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So what? So real quick, I know uh, we're getting pretty close on time. Mm -hmm. What uh, What are some of your go to compressors uh, that you like to use for for getting some interesting tones? Uh, you know, uh, or or even just uh, and and I'm mostly talking maybe analog, but in the plug in world, it's fine too. In the analog world, I've got a um, this ADR. It's like a vocal stressor, I think is what it's called. Uh, mm. And actually, there there are other ones. Uh, this one, the vocal stressor is an old unit, um, but man, you can really crank on it, and it does all kinds of interesting stuff. And it's got an EQ that you can put in the side chain. That's a really fun one to do something like like wild with. And it, for me, it's like if we're gonna go through the trouble of using hardware, it needs to have a color. It needs to have something sure. that's really different. But I think that's a that's a really cool one. And actually, the the other one that um, is also by ADR. 
Oh, the uh, Compex? The Compex. And so those yeah, are all, they're related. Wild, they're, that's they're, a wild unit. I love that that compressor. I think it sounds really great uh, on, on drums, particularly. I love uh, using um, the Transient Designer. Uh, I think that's a really, sure. that's a great, kind of, everyone seems to have one of those now. The weird thing about those to me is that we've got one that's was like one of their early runs. And then we got one that's later runs. And they don't react quite the same. And I don't know if they're mm. what the difference is or if one's burned in more or not. But there is yeah. something about like an older one of those for some reason that sounds a little bit more interesting. But um, but yeah, so I, I use that a lot. Um, and then, uh, you know, as far as for vocals and stuff, I really love um, uh, BL40s, uh, which are uh, it's like basically it's like an, an LA 3A and a 1176 together. Uh, in Whoa. series, so you can actually um, you can actually run both of them at the same time, and it's like it's it's got two compress. It's a radio compressor, and uh, for vocals, it's really great. I tend to just use the LA3A side primarily, but because it's got a it's got a really cool tonality to it. Um, but that's great. And then also, I've got a, um, a 1176 Rev, a Rev F 1176 that has got a great color. All those old 1176s, even with the same series number uh, or letter, they all sound different. Like we sure. have, uh, we've gotten a, a few of the Rev Fs and they all sound different. There's one in particular that we have is like the magic sauce for everybody. But, um, but yeah, so. Yeah, they're almost like, like tube screamers or something. Like even, even close serial numbers uh, will sound a little completely different. Completely different. And I don't know what the deal is on them. And I, I wish I knew more about why it's like that so i could you know i could search yeah, out find find the one or whatever. yeah yeah, yeah. Find, find more of the good ones but um <laughs> what's your uh what's your go-to slap delay so um i really dig as far as like outboard delays um i really like uh there is a um mofex it's a electro harmonics mofex hmm. uh and it's it's kind of a it looks like it was like a dj piece uh at some point huh. this is really funky fun com uh, uh, delay and you can do all kinds of stuff with it it's cut it's is it kinda, like a digital delay or a, yeah but it's one? kind of like a memory man uh huh. but in, in a rack mount unit and you can also it's got like a flanger on it and has all kinds of distortion and stuff huh. it's a pretty fun box and you can find those things for like a 100 bucks so those well maybe not now <laughs> yeah, I know. Now we I shouldn't about have said it. anything. Um, <laughs> I can't talk about stuff. But yeah, those things are great. Those things are really fun. So that's that's kind of a, that's a really cool one. I I like using you know tape delays and things too. Sure. Um, in in Pro Tools, you know, I mean, Echo Boy is really great for lots of yeah. things. Um, and then the is it the real delay or something that comes like free with the hd rigs. Oh, uh, yeah real real tape echo yeah, or real whatever tape that's echo. called that thing's great i use that all the time sure um so and it's you know real i put it on the hillbilly setting and then and then take the, the wet <laughs> all the way up or something and then like that's pretty much a slap yeah. on a couple records do you guys do you guys use a lot of outboard of like outboard like spring reverbs or plates or anything like that in, yeah you in, know we we have a room also in this in the church that we use for a chamber um and which right. is really great. And we have a, and we have an old EMT plate. And mm. so we'll, sometimes we'll do things where we're like, 
I'll take the plate and then run it into the chamber and then, or we'll do things where we'll have like a, you know, mess with memory mans or something before it just to kind of create some sort of warble sound or something. Um, so there's a, we use all kinds of stuff. There's not really like, and then we also have like, you know, um, some old springs we have like the fender guitar spring which is really cool it gives you that that sound i have to say there i i just recently downloaded a uh a really inexpensive springs uh reverb plugin that's actually really great i think it's called springs i don't remember who makes it um but it's a really there's a they're starting to get those plugins a little bit more um sophisticated uh yeah so like they, i remember it used to be like spring reverb in the box was a was joke very and difficult and it's like <laughs> there was nothing that really gave you that sort of like that that blinky sound <laughs> yeah the arturia one i think is my favorite right now mm-hmm. um which you know, is kind of funny for a company that mostly does synth stuff but yeah the arturia spring is wildly good yeah no and they make great stuff uh in general but um yeah, yeah. Th- there's 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 a bunch of good plugins out there i mean that's the thing is that you know and i think kind of getting back to philosophical land a little bit i think sure. you know we're in a situation these days where we have all of these options we can do anything we can get any sound that we want we can have a million tracks you know we can do all of these things limitations and creating artificial limitations for yourself sometimes is a really great way to be more creative and to bring like unique characters to your recordings so i sure. i think sometimes like um like for instance with spring reverb for you know maybe when you're doing a song or when you're doing a record say okay i'm only going to use spring reverb for the whole record or something you know right. what i mean or like finding ways of like creating certain certain rules or certain boundaries that kind of force your hand in certain decision making i think is a really cool way to sort of create a identity and a thumbprint for a song or for a, a, an album sure that's more i think that's more creative than having all of the options <laughs> yeah i mean it forces you to be resourceful and and come up with things you probably wouldn't do otherwise i mean you think about like artists you know back in the day it's like they had one kind of yellow that they used on every painting that they ever ever did sure. is yellow number whatever it is or you know they they would make their own paints out of egg whites and you know blood or something yeah. you know and um <laughs> and it's like but it's like you never when you look at like a rembrandt or something you never think like it's limited it just has a vibe it has a color and i think same way with recordings i think these days because everyone has all the options i think it's finding ways to like okay i really like this sound or i like this thing Maybe I'm going to use only this guitar on this entire album and finding mm-hmm. ways to like, I'm not going to, you know, pick the Strat up because it's got this chorusy sound. It's like, no, I'm going to use the SG for the entire record and and kind of making that a, a, a decision that is like forces your hand in a creative way. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and answer some questions and geek out about some stuff. I know my listeners will really appreciate it. And, you know, like I said, I I don't do a ton of interviews on the show. So I was glad to get you on because I like so much of the work that you guys have done and that you have done, you know, anything. I mean, there's a huge list out there, people. So please go check out the credits and listen. But thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us today. Well, Kendall, thank you so much for having me. Uh, This is a a real joy uh, talking about all this stuff. I could go on and on for days talking about this stuff. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. All right. Talk to you soon. 
So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Jason Hall. I hope you learned a lot. I hope he gave you some things to consider, some things about being bold and making bold choices and not pinholing yourself into certain methods that, oh, this is how I always record this or that, and trying new things, keeping that spirit of creativity, playfulness, and curiosity in your engineering to make sure that you're not just getting boring sounds and that you're not boring yourself out of the job. You know, you you want the job to stay fun. You want it to be inspired and you want the artist to have fun. You want the artist to be inspired. You want all of these things to work together to create a great record. That's part of the job. So Jason, again, thank you for uh, taking your time and uh, answering some of our geeky questions today. If you guys want to check out his credits, you can go to allmusic.com and search for, geez, pretty much any great country record in the last 20 years. Uh, he's, he's probably associated with it in some way. So if you have comments or questions, please send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out the website, recordingloungepodcast.com. And please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. It's the best way to help me continue this podcast, to help me offset the cost of the hosting and the website and all of these things to help this podcast stay alive. So go to patreon.com slash recording lounge. You can pay what you want and it will charge your account every time I come out with a new episode and not anymore. So I am rewarded for doing episodes and, you know, you're not paying a monthly fee. It's not a subscription situation. So anyway, go check that out. As always, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. Thanks for all your emails and your questions. I'll talk to you next time.